that my my that that is taking up space, right, and time. So time and space are part and parcel of this experience. Yes. For me to see something, I need to have some time to see it, and it has to appear in space. So the mind, as soon as the I is forgotten, and the me is taking its place somewhat in the mental tape, then that that dilemma can progress in time and geometrically progress in time. So the delusion can seem to become more and more deluded. Yes? The more and more and more and more and more it goes that the I is forgotten and the B is emphasized, the B becomes so dominant that you are totally absorbed in it and it goes to such a point where if you think an obsession is bad, identification is way farther down the line. Because no matter how much coke I did, I never thought I was coke. I never crossed the line and thought I was cocaine. Even though I loved coke and I did a lot of coke, I never believed I was But the fact is, we've taken ourselves to be what we're identified or addicted to, which is the idea of being a self, a long-lasting, independent, separate entity. The mind has gone so far past obsession. One of its ways of reinforcing the identification is obsessing over it. Because it's not a real bonding. You are not a self. So for it to appear to be you, it has to keep appearing. So it has to be reinforced by some mechanism, and it's reinforced by our perceptual take and our thinking here. Yeah? We perceive a real solid world filled with things. I see you as an other all day. When I look at you, you're, you're other than me. This perceptual reinforcement of this idea of being a self, and then the thinking, the obsession with the idea of being a self, keeps the trance somewhat in place. So we stay unconscious to the fact of the pure subject, which is I, and we take ourselves to be the pseudo-subject, which is me. And that's a huge interpretation about what's happening here. When the I is forgotten and the me takes its place, all hell can break loose. I can't, I don't know what the I is, because I don't think it has any qualities. First of all, you'd have to be something other than it to know it, right? I'd have to be southern, something other than it to see it, like here in this room. Let's say this eye, first of all, the eye's not seeing, seeing's happening through the eye. Well, let's just say the eye seeing. The eye can't see itself. It can only see what's around. It can never turn around and see itself, because it would be the eye turning around. So if the eye turned around to see itself, so here's the eye, and it thinks the seeing's coming from it, yeah? So it goes, okay, I'm going to turn around and see where it's coming from. It could, never, it could never get to it because wherever it turned, the one state of, the one fact of our state would see would be happening. There would never be a seeing of it. There would just be a seeing. And that's what occurs here. When we look for ourselves, the, ourselves, what we truly are, is being demonstrated in every moment we're looking for. Because here I am looking for myself. I'm looking for myself as something outside or an object or something inside as an object. And the whole while, what I am, what you see, is being demonstrated all the time I'm looking. Yeah? All the time I'm looking for it. Like all the time the eye's looking for itself, 
its only nature, which is to see, is being demonstrated. It's looking, seeing, seeing, seeing. I can't find it. That's it. It's the seeing. It's not, you're not going to, the truth isn't something that's seen. The truth is seeing. Spirit is seeing. You can't catch the spirit as an object to you. It's the pure subject, yes? So while the spirit is looking for itself, and it's, say, it's telling a long story about, oh, I haven't found what I am, it's demonstrating its nature every moment because it's looking. It's seeing. That's its nature. Yeah? But the mind <coughs> believes it's going to be something like this, you know? The truth. I've arrived at the truth. And let me tell you what it looks like when you arrive at the truth. It doesn't look like anything. It's seeing. Yeah? <coughs> That's the truth. It's the seeing. It's the activity of seeing is the truth. While you're looking, that's why St. Francis says, what you're looking for is what's looking. It doesn't say only when you're at church, that's what you're looking for, that's that what's looking. When you're looking towards the heavens, that's what you're looking for. No, it says, what you're looking for is what's looking. He doesn't put any kind of requirements of how that looking has to look. It's just what's looking. Every moment there's looking, that's what you're looking for. Wait a minute. What's looking is what I'm looking for. I thought I was looking for, or me, exactly, you see. The I was what's looking, and that's what me is looking for. If the me is seen not to be me, that's what's looking. Yeah? So, what's looking... Is what's what is what you are looking for. So what's looking is the I. What you are is the me. So when the me is looking for the I, it can't see the I. Yes? Because there ain't no me, that's the I. So what's looking isn't a you that's looking for. What's looking is what's looking. So if you drop the you out of that statement, so what's looking is what you are looking for. Just drop the you out of it. What's looking is looking for. Yeah? What's looking is looking for. So in the act of looking, that's what's looking, and that's what all the looking is for, is what's looking. And what's looking is an act or a verb right now. There's five different ways it can be looking, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, <clears throat> or witnessing thoughts, but they're all forms of seeing, yes? It's awareness. So awareness is being demonstrated every moment. So as I'm looking for the eye, when the eye is looking for itself, that's it, that's it. Yeah? Every moment of looking for is the definition of what's looking. It's a verb. We're looking for a noun. We're looking for enlightenment or the truth or some kind of <coughs> something, yes? That we think will give us as a something an advantage. But there is nothing, and that's the advantage. Nothing is what I'm looking for. Yeah? And nothing is what's looking. It's beautifully clean. It's 
stops your mind in its tracks so that it can reassemble, so that it can jump off the tracks of self-centeredness and sort of navigate life a different path, yes? A different way of living. Seeing life as it's happening, not that it's happening to me, per se, but it's happening. Just a simple observation that life is happening. But the self-centered observation is it's happening to me. And who is that me? I. And life ain't happening to I. Nothing that happens here ever affects I. It can seem to affect me quite a lot as this, but it doesn't affect the I. So the I is what's actually seen. But we call it me. And me can be affected here. If you're a dreamt object in a dream, if you're a dreamt object, maybe you believe you're the subject, but you're a dreamt object, yeah? You're picturing yourself in the dream, yes, as a body, don't you? When you're in a dream, you're in a body. It may not even be your body, but there seems to be a body involved. <coughs> so at that point, you're a dreamt object for all intents and purposes. Yeah? The dreamer has forgotten it's the dreamer and has now taken itself to be a dreamt object. And if you didn't wake up in the morning, you would have no idea it was a dream. It would be as real as it was when you were dreaming. Yeah? It really would be. See, we wake up from the night dream. We're just not waking up from this dream. So we think this is real. But it's the same thing. When you're in a dream, you're thinking as real as real can be. If you see a dream tiger in the dream, you're probably really afraid. Don't you? I mean, you're just fucking flipping out. <laughs> Things that happen to you that are really heavy in dreams. You wish they would stop, but you can't entertain they can stop because they're real to you in there. It's only when you wake up in the morning that you go, oh, that was a dream. You would never get to that conclusion here because you don't wake up from it, do you? So, you can get to the point where you realize this is a dream. That's called a spiritual awakening, in a sense. You wake up to the dream. So, you wake up to the fact that you're not the dreamt object. Yeah. So, here I am as the dreamt object, and there's a dream tiger in this dream I'm having. And I'm afraid shit of that dream tiger. Yeah. It looks very hungry. It's very big. It's growling at me. Now, my reaction is I'm scared. And I can read as many books as I want to read about how to be calm and cool and collected. You're a dream, you know, a, a fucking tiger, but I'm probably still going to have a lot of anxiety about my close vicinity to the tiger. Yes? No matter how much I read or how many affirmations I say, I'm probably going to have a reaction of anxiety around this fucking tiger. Can I, <coughs> uh, can I just keep going? Yeah, it would be better for me. I get into making like a souffle for a little cooking. I don't want to take it out of the oven too early. So here comes, so what happens? What would be the best solution to the anxiety that dream tiger is causing? It would be to realize it's a dream tiger, yes. In this case, it's even quicker. All you realize is you're a dreamt object. What you're taking yourself to be, me, is a dreamt object. Yeah. As soon as you realize you're not that, you recognize the dream tiger as a dream tiger. As soon as there's a recognition it's a dream, a dream tiger, the fear it was causing dissipates. Because it only caused that fear when you thought it was real. Not too many people are going to be afraid of a dream, a dream tiger, are they? They may act like they are, but they're not really, because they're awake. 
So you and I, as identified as this, the I being forgotten and the me taking its place, we are dreamt objects here, basically. We're identified as this. Yes? In this, the appearances in the dream can affect it greatly. You can get hurt by running into the chair. Yes? The chair seems real to you because the body's real. Yes? <coughs> but when you wake up, the effects of the dream are going to greatly diminish. You may they may last a little while while you're first starting to wake up. You'll go over the dream, maybe go, "Wow, that was an incredible dream," but very quickly it just it's forgotten, as if it never happened. Yes, that's sort of what like this place is like. It's forgotten as if it never happened, but in a sense, how it's forgotten is like moment to moment. It's not like you forget that you owe money or this and that. But the consequences or all those little experiences during your little dream day are forgotten. And what's sensed is the context of it, yes? The sense of that presence or that awareness that's allowing everything to appear in it, yeah? It's like here, if we had this chair here, let's say this chair. This chair is a very important chair. For 40 years this chair has been here a lot of important people have sat in this chair. A lot of, I hope, important things have been said in this chair. Yes? Now, <clears throat> I'm going to move this chair. I'm going to move this chair. Now, let's say I actually physically lifted it up. I don't want to do that, but let's say I just do it this way. So, when I move the chair, <clears throat> did I have to move any space back into where the chair was? Was the chair actually taking up any space? Was there a point where there was an empty space in the space here? I mean, it's very difficult to recognize an empty space in space. Yeah. All space seems empty, doesn't it? But yeah, let's just say, was there? And I rushed to the closet, got some space, the size of this chair, and I put it in there. No. When I moved the chair, <clears throat> the only places it showed any effects was on the floor, which is an appearance also, yeah. So the, the chair scuffed up the floor, and maybe if it rubbed up against the wall, it would show some marks. But on the space, do you see any effect of that chair? In a sense, if you didn't have a memory of the chair, it would be like there was never a chair there. Yeah? If you hadn't had an idea of time, you wouldn't have thought, yeah, there was a chair there a few minutes ago, but if time wasn't involved, it would be as if there was never a chair. Like, never a chair. <coughs> Alright, so here, let's bring the chair back. <coughs> and I'm sitting in it. In a sense, tell me the difference between me and the chair. So, in other words, I'm an appearance just like the chair. Yeah? Now, I may have been here for 80 years, 
but I'm going to disappear like the chair. The chair probably will last longer than I will, in fact. But in a sense, <coughs> I'm basically made of the same stuff the chair's made of, under appearance. And in a way, I'm actually not taking up any space at all. If I disappeared, it would be like I was never in this space. Yes? An hour from now, when we close this place, and we all leave, it will be like we were never here. There will be no effects shown on the space. Maybe there will be effect on that, I made a, you know, a mark on the wall, I spilled something on the floor, <coughs> but what I am can, can only affect other appearances. I can't affect the space. Yeah? So in the, in the view of consciousness, <coughs> I would say we're more space-like, or spirit-like, yeah, spirit meaning no, no form, you're not in a form, you're not in an appearance, we're more space-like than we are appearance-like. Yeah. We're more space-like. The eye is of space, and the body is of appearance. So like Jesus says, we're in the world, which is a world of appearances, but we're not of the world. So I would say we're of, we're of space, yes, or spirit, but we're in the realm of appearances, yes? Call this, we're in the realm of experiences, of the world, yeah? So I'm in the world, seemingly, as an appearance, but I'm of space. And this appearance, if you went back to the place that you felt you did the most heinous act of your life, yeah? I bet you there would be no mark in the space. Even if you murdered somebody in a room, maybe there would be blood stains still on the wall. Maybe there'd be a hole where the bullet went into the wood. But in the space, there would be no mark. So in a sense, you and I, as this, yeah, though we have many effects and influences here in, in appearances, we really have no effect on space. Whatever we've done hasn't left any mark on it no matter how noble or how terrible. We've never really ever influenced the space that we are. We've only influenced and affected other appearances as we're not. Yeah. <coughs> this is wonderful news to me. Yeah. Because the burden of being a self is the heavy burden, heaviest burden of all. All the other problems you think you have and all the other effects that you've been right fighting and wrestling with are all based on you being a body. Look at all the problems you have. Isn't there only one person or one thing that has all the problems? All the problems you've confronted in what you call your life, you're the only one who had them all. If there was 800 problems, there was only one you having them. Yeah? Now, if I didn't particularly like the atmosphere of living in problems, and I entertain the idea that there's been 800 problems in my life, but there's only been one me having them. Instead of looking at the 800 problems so much, I look at the one that the one who's having them. Because maybe if I'm not that one that's having them, maybe <laughs> the experience of having a problem may change dramatically. Yes. Maybe the experiencing of having a problem is really based on the one who thinks it has the problem other than the problems. The problems come and go. Their degrees change. 
But the idea of the persistent experience of having problems, I would say, is based on the one who has the problem, not problems, yes? Because you and I, as this, give everything all the meaning it has. That's what this apparatus does. It gives meaning to things. So when I look at the world, I give it the meaning it has for me. And obviously that meaning that's given is probably going to be based on a certain point of view that's directing that meaning. Most of us are experiencing the meaning given to life by a system called self-centeredness. So self-centeredness has taken this ability to give meaning to things and is now giving our life the meaning it has. We're seeing everything as how it pertains to us most of the time. Yeah? Instead of experiencing or sensing life is happening, which is a much nicer way to travel here, much lighter, we're seeing as it's happening to me all the time. Or something I want is happening to you, and I want it to happen to me, and so on and so forth. Yeah? So this idea of self-centeredness, if all you and I do here really is give meaning all day to things, like give meaning to the sushi that we had, and what was said, and who we saw, and the meaning that, oh, I must have fucked up on that deal, because da da and then the meaning changed when you realized it wasn't. So our mind is giving constant meaning all the time. But that meaning is determined and delivered, yeah, and directed by a system. It's almost like a, like a, a gun almost, almost like something that can focus and shoot. So you shoot into situations and thoughts and circumstances and experience meaning. Yeah? And that meaning defines your interpretation of the event. Yeah? So, <clears throat> it looks like the event's happening from the outside, but really it's the meaning your mind's giving it, and then you think it's coming at you. But you played a huge role in it, because your mind projected a meaning out to that, based on your old ideas and beliefs. Yeah? So let's say someone just says something to you in the hallway. Like when I was young, one of the first big experiences I had of this was I was like 11. I was walking through the hallway at school, and a girl said hello to me, just very innocently. And I went home and wondered what she meant by it for five hours. <laughs> it was like this, because my hormones had kicked up, you know, I was starting to like girls. And it was a huge event. And it must have been billions of events happened that day at school. But in my subjective view, that was the event. And I went home, and my mind represented it. Represented it. In other words, what happened was a girl said hello to me. I went home, and in my head, represented that event 500 different ways, all determined by self-centeredness. Every way it was looked at, it was defined by self-centeredness. What does it mean to me? Does she like me? Doesn't she like me? Am I, do I look good? Or da, da, da. Tons of unbelievable selfing, I call it. It was so unbearable, really. You know, hours and hours of extreme going over. She just maybe just didn't even notice me. She just said hello to someone else that was standing near me. But I took it personally. Oh, she said hello to me. Yeah. This is what the selfing does. It gives meaning to things. Yeah. And that meaning is now taken to be the real deal. So you start living an interpretation. 
And in that living interpretation, you give up the sense of being alive, which is the conscious contact. And the true sense of presence isn't that what's seeing is me, but what's seeing is the I. That's the sense of spiritual presence. It's when there's a recognition of the I is what's looking, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. Instead of the story that it's me that's seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. The sense of the I, which is conscious contact, or the interpretation by my mind that it's me. Because the me doesn't represent just this picture. It represents a lot of old ideas. A lot of beliefs and a lot of conditionings that this me has gone through here in education, in the family, everything like that. So the me is a, a giant catacomb of beating. So when anything happens and it's claimed by you, that you injects tons of meaning into what happened. So let's say what happened is blue, your mind can turn it yellow. In other words, whatever color is presented, it gets whitewashed by the mind's color. Let's say if you feel unlovable, that's going to be a big whitewash or a big tint in all your interpretations. If you feel you're not enough, there you go. If you feel you're never going to get what you want, there you go. It's always going to be read into everything that happens, some basic storylines of your conditionality. Yes? And it's going to be the destiny of your interpretation. And you're going to take it to be real. That false evidence is going to appear to be real to you. So your responses will seem to be appropriate from where you're seeing it from, but they're totally inappropriate because that's false evidence. Yeah? False evidence is causing a real reaction from you. You're getting worried about an imaginary problem. If, you, if this continues, there's going to be an incredible toll on you as this be. Your physicality, your mental health, your nerves, your behavioral patterns. You're going to want relief. Yeah? You're going to want relief from the original addiction to the mind itself. And so let's say that stuff is producing an unbearability. You may be apt to want to get loaded to get relief. So you get get loaded, but as that relief is so temporary, you have to keep taking it, and an addiction follows. So now you have an addiction, which was really the solution to the initial problem. Like for me, drinking alcohol was my first solution to alcohol. I got some relief from alcoholism when I drank. So that was my solution, and that turned into a real beast. Yeah? And that produced problems, and then I got loaded on drugs, which covered up those problems, and that became even a bigger beast. And so every time my mental solution was hatched, it became a bigger problem in time and space. The problem kept progressing and amplifying the initial problem was misidentification of the I and calling it me. And it produces tons of effects here. Tons of effects. And you don't even see. It's truly like you're totally on a consequential level. You don't know the shit's going to hit the fan until it hits you in your face. And you still don't know how it happened. I mean, I would go out at night. I'd start out like I just wanted to have fun. 
go to a bar, shoot to a pool, cop some coke, get some, do some coke, go to a club, start dancing, then I'd be invited to the police station around 1230 at <laughs> like a Tuesday night. And then I'd get released around 8 in the morning, whatever, and then I'd go home, and then next night I'd do the same thing. And when I ended up in jail, I was really surprised. How did this happen? But I did exactly the same thing that brought me to jail the night before. But I was so confused. I was on such a consequential level, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, I was totally unconscious. Yeah. Because I was identified as the B. When you're identified as the B, you forget the nature of I. And the nature of I is the solution to the problems of B. The nature of I, and entertaining the nature of I is the solutions that the me produces. Yeah. Well, as Jesus says, you can't serve two masters at the same time. If I is I and me is not, if you serve me, you're not serving the master of I or what. If you're not serving God, you're serving what else? Simple. And every moment is the possibility. To me, it's broken. I like to describe it as... Dying to the self or dying as the self. So dying as the self, we know really well. We're identified as this me. We're listening to the thought stream. We're believing false evidence appearing real. We're acting totally unconsciously. We're just doing, we're like a puppet that a string's pulled and we act that certain way. Yes? We're dying as the self. We're dying to the spirit as the self. We're taking to be the spirit totally non-consequential here. I have no evidence, I'm not bumping into it, I don't feel it. It's all about me. That's dying as the self. Dying to the self is when you start questioning the thoughts. Maybe the first way you do it is, hey, the thoughts I thought were mine are alcoholic thoughts. Check out the evidence at an, at an AA meeting. If you go to a number of AA meetings and you listen, over time, people are going to share what you call your thoughts. And they're going to share what you call your feelings. And you're going to hear very similar reactions to life that you've done by others. Because they've been taken over by the same mental complex that you have, called alcoholism. Yes? And really, your life is just an expression of what's taken you over. And the real root of the problem is the act of being identified. You're calling alcoholism expressions in your life yours. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? You keep claiming the stuff that's killing you. Yeah? In other words, all that fear that you say you're having, you're claiming it to be yours. You can't entertain freedom from fear if you think that it's yours. Yeah? If you see that it's not you that's producing these effects, you can entertain being free of them. It's not you that are producing these effects. It's a misidentification of identifying a self, and self is used in this life to express itself through. And some of the common expressions are fear and resentment. So there's tons of more. If I had a dictionary, I'd love to read the word self, and then the hyphen, and all the adjectives of what self looks like here. I think there's about 90 or 100 of them, and about 80 of them are what we would call negative, maybe 20 are positive. So you're getting a one out of five chance of having a good day. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's a bad odd, man. 
And of course, if you lose it so much, you're going to have to blame somebody. Yeah. And if they're self-centered, if they're self-centeredness, after you finish blaming everyone else, it's going to end up on you. And you're going to be punished. You know, badly, very badly. You have to look at the system of self-centeredness. Well, you don't. I'm just going to share what I've seen by looking at it. When I was young, when I was six years old, my father got really ill. Yeah. So, he stopped playing with me. And he started, stopped really participating in a lot of my life. And my family sat down and told me, hey, your dad's getting really sick. Dad's really sick, and that's why he's not taking you to baseball, you know, practice and everything like that. <clears throat> and maybe even the doctor, the family doctor came and told me, and maybe the father O'Farrell came from the diet, you know, the church, and said, Paul, your father's really ill, that's why you're not, that's why he's not playing with you anymore. But I'll tell you, after all was said and done, in my gut, I believed I must have done something wrong to cause my father not to want to play with me. No matter how much people said, in my gut, I felt I must have done something for him not to want to play with me. And nobody was going to convince me otherwise. That is one of the root dilemmas of self-centeredness. If you have an idea that everything can be beautiful and perfect and God is loving, and yet your experience is you just yelled at your wife and threw a fucking frying pan at somebody, and you saw someone abuse someone on the side of the street, yes, the incongruity or the irreconcilability of those two ideas that are cause something, and when you look at it, there's going to be at some point that you're going to be to blame. If it's truly self-centeredness, you're written into every story. And if there's, there's a belief that all there is is love in God, and yet you're experiencing separation, you is going to have a lot of guilt and shame about that, because you're going to think you're the cause of it. Yeah? The cause of miracles is to always talk about it. It's the inherent guilt that we're made of. It's the, it's the initial contraction of selfing. And all the guilt and all the... All the, all the guilt and shame that we get off on doing bad things in this life is really a way of trying to unload this initial guilt and shame. It doesn't do any good. You can feel guilty about all these other things you ever did, but there's very, very little forgiveness for that because you believe you're the cause of separation. You find yourself seemingly separate. They're telling you God is one and all there is is this and that. But that's not your experience. If you're in self-centeredness, you're going to find yourself somewhere to blame about that. There's no escape in self-centeredness. You're the center of the universe. If this is how the universe it is, you had something to do with it. And I don't care what fucking philosophy you're dealing with up here, it's not going to sink in there. <laughs> Tell me, it's just not... You can't deal, you can't swim in the sea of self-centeredness. You're going to meet too many sharks. You have to realize you're not self. When self gets dropped out of that system, the system loses its whole center. Yes? It, it deflates, it collapses. It's all built and based on that gravity of self. The planet holds all the stars in place. Yeah? All the thoughts that are driving you crazy are held there by self. When you're not that, you'll see thoughts as thoughts. Their nature is to come and go. They don't define anyone. They don't, they don't locate you anywhere. They don't do anything. They're really, they're helpful when you're working on a car or trying to figure out a math problem. 
the mind has a good ability to work things out, but on a certain level of describing what you're like, what you're going to be like, what's going to happen, it's total insanity. It's like living with a crazy weatherman. You're going to be, you know, sleeping in your rain gear every day. Because <laughs> no matter how nice it is today, you don't think it's going to rain tomorrow. It is. How can you enjoy any peace if there's the possibility of, not, of it not being here t- tomorrow? How can you really enjoy it? Yeah? Anything that has the ingredient of time in it always, always becomes temporary because you can't entertain that this is going to last forever. Because you think it's based on your behavior. So you believe you had something to do with the peace you're feeling. When you see peace is not of you, it's not of this place, it's timeless, then the availability of peace can be entertained as always there at all times. But it's very difficult to entertain it being always there when you're identified as a self. You just can't imagine it. Yeah? Because all you think is you made you had something to do with peace appearing, and you may think you definitely believe that you can stop doing what you were doing to make peace occur, and then peace won't occur. We're really here in self-centeredness. We fall under the basic statement of AA, which is the how and why of the whole program. If you look at your mental activity, it is the root of the problem of AA, which is the how and why of the whole program is step three, and it says we've got to quit playing God. It doesn't work. This is playing God. Playing God is recognizing the act of God, which is conscious contact and calling it being. Right there. It's already, the self has elevated it to the point of being God. It's taken the verb of Godness, which is consciousness in contact, and said, I'm the one that's consciously in contact. Yeah? So here you are, here's consciousness, or if you want to call it spirit, or if you want to call it God. Here's God, and here's the body. So God is always here. Yes? God is the consciousness, and it's streaming through the body, right? The body is like the lens. The body is like the telescope that the scientist looks through, and through by looking through the telescope, the stars seem to appear to be closer. They're not actually closer. They appear to be closer, yes? So the scientist is what's looking. Now, if the, sci- but the, the telescope, when the scientist leaves, the telescope claims the looking and says, I'm looking. The telescope now thinks it's looking. That's the mistake. Yes? Because now, now the telescope is looking, but it's recognizing the scene as the lens has been put on this end. It's opaque now. It's taking itself, the telescope, to be the one who sees. And therefore, the seeing isn't happening anymore. So like in the Course, it says, you see only the past. You see a past star and a past sky. And it's all fucking speculation. So this is like recognizing first, yes? Consciousness, then body. The mind goes like this, moves the body and makes consciousness a verb the body's doing. I'm conscious, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm feeling, I'm tasting. So its first initial playing God is just this. It puts itself before God. So the act of consciousness now becomes a verb you're doing. It's fucking incredible, right? So, the act of consciousness now becomes the verb you and I are doing. So, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm feeling, I'm tasting, I'm touching. And once it's claimed, now the selfing has free range to get into it. So, now you have tons of opinions about what you saw. Tons of opinions about what you hear. Tons of opinions about what you smell. 
what you touch, what you taste, and tons of opinions about the thoughts you see. Yes? And selfie just goes bananas. All based on the initial raw data of life, which is conscious contact. Brought to you by you? No. Brought to you by consciousness. Yeah. So this is just simply keeping this in place. Consciousness is prior to me. I'm seeing, and that's that. Yeah? I have an immunity now to the mental interpretation of I'm seeing as me. And I realize that me I'm not. And then the seeing goes on, and it's actually becomes conscious. Yes? You're now in the consciousness of seeing, not the unconsciousness of me seeing. And then what you've been looking for, you realize, is what's looking. What you used to call you. That's what you're looking for. But it's not a body. It's what's looking. Yeah. That's it for me. That's the spiritual awakening. You wake up to the spirit. Yes? Doesn't mean you forget the body. But you don't take the body to be you. you travel light up here when everything's in place. So now blue is seen as blue and red is red. What used to confuse you doesn't confuse you anymore. The emphasis is on what's happening now, what happened then and what's happening then and there. You lose interest in what's not happening and you gain interest in what's happening. And this is the this is the sense of aliveness. The aliveness is in what's not happening is in what's happening. It is not about interpreting what's happening into what's not happening. Most of us, truly, are living in a mental realm called what's not happening. Definitely. We are sitting here, and we're not responding to this moment, we're reacting to there and then. The mind is comparing this moment to a past moment, and then speculating how much greater it will be in a future moment. All the while, invalidating now. And this is all there is. You cannot play God more than that. Just like we said last night, God gives you a day like one card at a time, doesn't it? Each moment you get dealt a card. You can't rush from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock. It's going to be 1, 101, 102, yeah? Card's going to be dealt, and then you'll get to 5 when you get to 5. The head wants to tell you how the whole card game's going to be when you wake up. It's going to suck today. I'm going to lose, I know it. You know, fuck them, I hate this game. Yeah. This to me is playing God. That's the act of playing God. The head is speculating in time how it's going to be. And yet how it's going to be is a verb. You can't foretell a verb until you get there. Yeah? Because there's no there to get to in a verb. It's just verbing. <laughs> there's no... There's no noun in the verb that the verb gets there to. It's just going. Yeah? It's just being alive. It's just being fucking conscious. What does this mean? What's going to happen to you in your life? You'll find out. If you're a planner now, you'll be a planner when there's awakening. Yeah? But you'll take it looser. Yeah? You won't take everything so seriously. <laughs> and the beautiful thing is, your attention and interest will be freed up from all of that and will be readily available to be spent here, in this moment. 
And if there's nothing happening, it will just rest in and of itself. The attention will rest in the attention. And then it will be spent where it's spent. But it will never forget its home, which is not self, but that attention. Yeah? That awareness. That quality of consciousness. Yeah? And there's an infinite source of it. You'll never lose attention. You don't have a limited amount of attention. It's always available. You just lose attention in things. So you lose interest in the thing. You don't lose interest. You just lose interest in that, and then your interest goes somewhere else. Yeah. There's always interest. Even if you're totally bummed out, you're interested in that. Yeah. If your head's telling you're totally depressed and totally apathetic about everything, you're totally interested in that. There's interest. All the time. It's just, it moves from thing to thing. Can you imagine if the interest moved from things to no thing? So your interest started to rest in no thing, which isn't located anywhere in, lo in physicality, nor in any time. It's unlocated here, it's everywhere. So your interest and attention will be resting in everywhere. Yeah? While you're dealing with the special somewhere, there will be part of your attention resting in the everywhere. Because the everywhere is at every special somewhere you've ever been or ever will be. The everywhere is there. Yeah. So your interest and attention gets withdrawn from the there and then, from what's not happening. Yeah. What once you thought happened and what you think will happen. Your interest and attention gets withdrawn from that bank account and it gets invested in the bank of now, yes? And you got a damn, damn good funds manager, and it starts investing your attention and interest now, yes? And the returns are much greater than any self-interested investment you ever made, yes? When self was running your investment of your attention and interest, what did you fucking get back? Anxiety and regrets and resentments most of the time. This, you may get a sense of presence, yeah? You may get a sense of lightness. You actually may be used to help someone else. Your interest may leave the circle of you and go out to another. Yes, like it says in AA, you'll lose interest in your little plans and designs and gain interest in others. So you don't lose interest, you lost interest in designs, and then you gain this, and now the interest is invested in others. And you get a great return with that interest. You feel what? More alive. Yes? You feel the presence. You feel available. And I'll tell you, the greatest solution to dissatisfaction is satisfaction. When you truly feel satisfied, a lot of your behavior will change because it's usually driven by being dissatisfied. When you find, really find a sense of satisfaction, you chill out. <coughs> the hunt's over. Yes? The planning stage is finished. It's time to sit in it and relax. So now, you're actually, instead of planning on enjoying something, you're enjoying nothing, really. That's the good news. <laughs> it's nice, you know? You're just sitting in nothing, enjoying it, and whatever something happens, it happens. But the nothing's very enjoyable, and nothing's never going to happen, so it's always here. <laughs> really, it's the only place to rely on. Because every something is going to turn into another thing. And it's going to disappear because it appeared. But nothing never appeared, so it will never disappear. It's the only reliable state. 
So when I entertain that I'm not that, all this, all this idea of being me, yeah, when I'm entertaining I'm not that, it's that absence that's the presence. This absence, me being absence or being a self, is the presence that the self's been looking for all this time. So what they always say is the seeker is the sort. Yes? The seeker is the sort. What you're looking for is what's looking. The seeker is the sort. The I, which we did today, the I that's looking out of everyone's head that's been translated as a me by the mental process is the thing that's looking for. So the me is looking for, what's looking is the I. They're happening at the exact same time. Yeah? The eye is looking, and the mind's interpreting it as you looking for. Yeah? See the interpretation, is it you? That's the eye that's looking. And it's always looking. It doesn't start when you entertain you're not that. It's always been so. Yeah? Every, every translation of the eye looking as you looking for is only a translation by mind. The true basis is I is looking. Out of everyone's experience here right now seeing, it's the I see. The I see. Every one of us plays a different role in everyone seeing. I'm a you to you, and you're a you to me. Yes? But all that seeing is I. There's one spirit looking out from wherever we are. The mental process says it's me, that becomes the you, and it's you that's looking for and what you're looking for is the eye that's looking. And the eye and you are in the exact place at the exact time. There ain't no you, that's the eye. Yeah. And it's being in that it's getting constantly reaffirmed every minute of seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. How much more love do you want in your life? What you're looking for is demonstrating itself five different ways every moment that you're conscious. It's moving through you through the through the lens of seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, and touching. It's like being embraced five ways by a lover instead of one way. And you keep going, where is it? Where is it? It's seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. That's what it is. I thought that was me. No, it's the I. The me is the mental process. The me is claiming the I. That's the that's the birth of self. And then all the mental activity is the reinforcement of that birth to make self seem real. So you're selfing constantly to reaffirm the false birth of a self that came from the recognition of consciousness. I'm seeing, but the mind says it's me. So then I think it's different than the seeing that's coming from this. But let's say this eye that I think I'm seeing from or maybe I believe the eye seeing, if I died and you took this eye out of my head, and if Dennis needed an eye and you put it in, it would be seeing out of Dennis's eye. If you took that eye out of Dennis and put it back in my dead body, you wouldn't see. You could put it merely back in his eye, and his head would see. So obviously this isn't seeing. Yeah? Because if this was seeing, then if I had the eye, I'd be seeing. But I, it needs something to see, which is consciousness. And only a live person has that opportunity to be conscious. So it's the consciousness that's seeing. I call that the I, 
Whereas Ramana Maharshi called it the I-I, the pure subjectivity, the pure one and the only one. In all of these experiences of being many, there's one I. Yeah? And that's what's seeing. That to me is the spiritual awakening. You what do you wake up to? That your spirit. Instead of a me, a body. And I'll tell you, <clears throat> if this had a voice, it's the happiest day of its life. The body. Because that fucking mental hen that's been sitting on it every second of every day, judging every little move it makes and critiquing every thought that came through it, and should I do this, should I do that, blah, 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 blah. That thing, when it realizes it's not, it loses interest in it, and it lifts. And the body is like the greatest day of all time for the body. Hallelujah! That hen's left the fucking, fucking nest. Now my Yankee crap. It's fucking insane, isn't it? When did you start just thinking through life? When I was a kid, I was playing. I was aware, I was conscious. When I was playing with ants, that was all that was happening. There wasn't a little narration going, oh, I'm playing with ants today. There was none of that. I was just totally engaged in what was happening. I could play with army men for two years, 13 army men with Wayne Griffin. Never bored, just playing underneath an apple tree, just making up stories all fucking day. You know, now you get Xbox 50 and you're bored in 20 minutes. Fucking, you got virtual, you know, virtual reality surround now. Fucking, you bored shit. <clears throat> there was an immediacy to life. What happened? At that time, when I was young, I wasn't in an abusive situation, so I had time and space to roam. At that time, I had no idea of time. So when I was playing, I didn't know I may not be playing next week. There wasn't an option. So therefore, I was fully engaged in playing because there was no option that maybe I won't be playing next week. Yeah? And my mother could have been super ugly and fat, and I loved her no matter what, because I had no idea of beauty and ugliness yet. I didn't. I didn't have, I didn't need to have gap clothes when I was a kid. I didn't ever look in a mirror when I was three years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? I could have, you know, fuck it. It was just having a, there was an immediacy to life. What happened? <clears throat> I grew out of it, and I grew into a system of thought called self-centeredness. And that system of thought presented itself as me. And somehow or another, something fell asleep and believed that fact. And then I lived as if I was what it was saying I was, which is a body. Yeah? And therefore, this entertaining this entertained all of that. And from here, everything else was given meaning. From me being a body, everything else was given meaning. And then I've just been reacting to the meaning my mind gave everything since then. And not doing very well. I was quite overwhelmed by it. And I had a tendency to want relief. Yes? I started to drink and use, and I had that little bug that I quickly became an addict and an alcoholic. And then I had 20 years of a destiny out here in the dream, stamped and tattooed as a drug addict and, and drunk. Unbearable mental suffering produced. Incredible mental suffering. So in those times when I was awake for seven or eight days, one sense I was observing mind, I was looking at it because I was wide awake. 
I was still looking at it from the point of view of herself, but I learned a lot about the fucking mind. But all I needed was one bit of evidence that I was missing. There was one thing I was missing, and that was I'm not that. See? I thought I was learning about myself. I was learning about the self, but I wasn't learning about myself. Myself was what's looking, yeah? I was learning about the self, but I was taking it to be myself. And that self-knowledge was driving me even more crazy. Because now I knew a lot, but nothing was changing. It was like I was a professor of holes, but I kept falling in them. I could describe what a hole looks like, how deep it's going to be, what's the width of it, but I was still dropping in there all the time. It was really painful to have any kind of knowledge claimed by self. Then I got, so what happened to me, I was just sitting in a trailer park on a typical day at the office, really. I had gone out, <laughs> really. I'd gone out four days before, drinking St. Patrick's Day, and it was now the 21st of March, and I woke up in a trailer park about two hours from San Francisco. I had lost my car. <laughs> I didn't know who I was with, but I was with somebody, this guy. I didn't know who he was. And I think we had a mutual friend named Michael Hall or something, I don't know, but <clears throat> and we were drinking Royal Cape Vodka, really cheap uh, vodka in California, about 90 cents a pint. And uh, I had drunk myself dumb. I was really stupid. I was like worse than a sitcom. I couldn't put sentences together. I was really, and I'd been, when I went to sleep, I'd wake up drunk. I was still drunk from drinking so over. Yeah. I mean, even when I, when I woke up to sleep, I didn't have to have a drink. I was drunk when I woke up from the sleep. And I was sitting with this guy, and I was just surviving another day, hoping to get some money to get some dope, you know? And I looked at him, and he had a big bulbous nose and varicose veins on his face. And I said to myself, this guy's a fucking bum, you know? And lo and behold, I looked at him, and it looked like he was looking at me like I was a bum. And that was like the moment of clarity for me that they talk about in recovery. It was like a, a portal opened up, really, almost like the space divided and some information dropped in that had been hovering probably for quite a while but couldn't break through the, the cloud front of denial. But the denial must have weakened enough for something to fall in and it was like a CNN newsflash, no story, but it just said I'm fucked. Now, people who knew me knew I'd been screwed for years, but it was news to me. Really, it hit me like, what? I mean, I'm really, I'm really fucked? Yeah, you've been fucked for quite a while. What? Why didn't you tell me? You've been telling me for years. So it hit me, and uh, it stopped me in my tracks, really. And I didn't pick up the, beer, the bottle anymore. I just looked at him, and I... Looked in, I had some change, and I went out to a phone booth, and I called up this program called Delancey Street I'd lived in for two years. They have a facility in New York. I had lived there for two years, a women program, 85 to 87, and I got down in April uh, of last year, and this was now March, or May I got out, so I'd come in out for 10 months, and it took, I had about 10 months of health, and I had run it into the ground, and I ended up here, after 10 months of getting loaded and running. And so I went out to the phone booth and I called the Lancy Street up and I asked them if I could come back. And they said no. They had been getting a newsletter of my behavior, I think. <laughs> and they said, you can come back in a month, but that only means we're going to interview you again. We could say no, 
they say yes for you to come back. And because of that, it's amazing what happens when that portal opens because some honesty came in. And I said the first honest thing I'd said in a long time, which is, I don't have a month. You know, I just knew this was terminal. No good was going to come up. This was over. So I called up a woman who I used to party with in San Francisco, and I asked her if she'd come back. I was very humble, you know, very uh, beaten. And she, I guess she must have heard the sincerity because she heard enough bullshit from me that she could compare the two. She must have thought I was sincere, so she decided she'd come up again. It took about an hour and a half to drive up there. In an hour and a half, like many of us, I had a miraculous alcoholic recovery. I wanted to get loaded again as soon as I got in the car. It was like it never happened. I was like, let's get down to business. I have no money, so what I have to do talk her into spending money. Yeah. Oh, honey, let's get the six-pack of tolls, cop the coke, get the dirty magazines, rent the hotel room, have a great old time. But she had, had, she had followed that equation with me many times and hadn't been that satisfying for her. <laughs> so she said, no, we're not doing that this time. Says, you, she said, do you want a place to stay tonight? And I really did. I knew where to go. Didn't have a pot to piss in or anything. And I said, yeah, I did. That got my attention. And she says, you got to go to an AA meeting. And I'd never been to an AA meeting. So I said, yeah, for an hour, I get a whole night sanctuary, I'll go. So she took me to my first meeting, March 21st, 1988. And I've been sober clean ever since. So that meeting was a consequence of that portal opening up. Yeah? That little moment of clarity initiated a train of circumstances which brought me to my first meeting a day later. Yeah? And I've had a solution now that's worked in this place of time for over 22 years. Can you imagine if you turned your attention to that portal? What would be received and what could come through? Instead of constantly being drawn into this place and having it come through the back door and affecting it, can you imagine if you turned around and received it? I can imagine. It's pretty amazing what can happen when you turn around and receive that light. Instead of just being the effect of it, you can actually receive it. Yeah? And that's what occurred to me. I came in AA and I had all the information I needed about I was screwed. I mean, the first step was obvious. There's powers over this stuff. And that my life was unmanageable. But I didn't have anything to ignite all that information. And AA was that match. Yeah? When I threw AA on all the information that my life had acquired, it finally went up into a, uh, an illuminating fire. I saw something finally. Yes? I saw something. And just like AA says, AA is like the greatest recycling plant of all. Because you may believe you have absolutely no value. Your life has had no value for years. You're just like a parasite. You've lived off of people, places, and things. And yet, if you surrender to AA, it will use what you call valueless and make it very valuable by helping other people. Now, all I need in this program is one demonstration. But this power demonstrated on the largest stage of my life, which was alcoholism and addiction. It had dominated me since I was younger, and it had dominated me out here since I was 11 or 12. But it affected me since I was about 7 or 8, yeah? And this demonstration, this power that was greater than self, came and changed my whole life. It's not even, it could never even be based on physics, because I had so much momentum going down, 
But like pulling back from that and going up wasn't that painful. Yeah. And it was like so much grace that just created a buoyancy in me. And I was raised above the phrase, so to speak. Yes? And I was given what we call a new life. And I was given uh, so much out of just participating in this program. Yeah? And just by entertaining some of the basic principles they offer, which is to quit playing God. Truly rely on something greater than self. Everything else is just beating around the bush, really. The whole principle of AA is quit playing God is what we call reliance on self. If you stop playing God, that's called relying on something greater than self. Because if you stop playing God, something has to be God for you. Yes? So what is being God for you is self. If you stop playing God, what is, I would, I hate to use the word, is God, but what is God will play God for you. And what you and I can't do alone, we can do together, because we can amplify and magnify that God. Just like it says in our tradition three, what is it, two, that a loving God may express himself in our group conscience. What's happening tonight? Maybe just for me, but maybe for a few people in this room. There is a there's an effect of the group conscience that you can feel that you probably wouldn't feel by yourself. You know, by being in this room and by entertaining what we're entertaining, there's an openness that something can be felt that you probably wouldn't feel at Denny's right now or at Starbucks. <laughs> it's a possibility, but you probably wouldn't. It wouldn't be your attention and interest wouldn't be emphasizing it. Yeah. But because of this space, there's a presence. It's like a free sample. It's like a free spiritual meal. Yeah? And so that you can get a, you get, a, get a sense of what's actually happening here and get some immunity to what's not happening. And I'm telling you, how your mind is representing life is not happening. It's not what life is. It's a mental representation of it. And it is skewed and biased. It's not an objective CNN-type take. It's very, very skewed. It's sort of like this. If your head is having a good time, how long does it allow it to last before questioning it? Not very long. Not very long. Now, if your head is having a bad time, how long does it let, la- how, how long does it let the bad time last? Very long. I rest my case. Do you want that? to interpret your life anymore? Because that's what's interpreting it. The one that elongates a bad time and and shortens a good time. You want to have a life that's going to be shortened by all the good things that you're hoping for, shortened by what receives it, and all the bad things you're trying to avoid, and lengthened? And even if they're not there, the fear of them will dominate you. Even if the bad thing isn't happening, it doesn't matter to mind. It's thinking about it creates the same effect as if it is happening. So it doesn't even need any evidence to produce the effect. It can, can, can just think about it and it will produce the, produce the effect in you. If you have no immunity to it. And you have no immunity to, to it as a self. Because the self is the product of the advertising company. The mind that's advertising it's going to be a bad day is selling to its own chairman, the self. <coughs> it's all one corporation. 
I be you. I be mine. There's a unity to it. Entertain, maybe I'm not that. If you care, if you have a difficulty with that, maybe if you go to AE meetings, just hold the idea. It sure seems like a lot of people have my thoughts. They do. Well, they're sharing. You can't get around it. And it seems like a lot of people have my feelings. And it sure seems like a lot of people do what I do when I'm in a bad situation. They react the same way. Maybe my reactions and my feelings and my thoughts aren't mine. Maybe I can at least say they're alcoholic thoughts. And they're alcoholic feelings. And they're alcoholic reactions. And you'll get at least one or two steps of distance between the thought and the mind. Yeah? And maybe that one or two thoughts pieces of distance will be so fucking rewarding that you'll entertain a little deeper. Start there, though. Start getting immunity to the daily narrative. Stop believing how the mind is representing your day. Be able to see false evidence before it appears real. See, if you see a blueprint of a house, <coughs> and you can look at the blueprint and say, hey, I'm not going to be comfortable living there. It's much easier to say that when it's a blueprint than when you moved into the house. Because by then you probably have a lease. Yes? You're paying the gas and the water. All these other things. Exactly. But the blueprint is its false evidence appearing real. To who? It's false evidence. It needs something to appear real to. It can't appear real in and of itself. It has to appear real to somebody. Something false cannot appear real, period but it can appear real to you. Yeah? If you're giving meaning to things, then something that's false, that has absolutely no meaning, can appear real to you. Because you can give it a real meaning. So the immunity is, it's false evidence. The immunity to what's not happening is it's not happening. It's not a giant 20-page solution. It's a recognition What's driving me crazy is not happening. Yeah? So then the driving crazy can stop. If what's causing you to be driven crazy isn't happening, then how can the driven crazy be happening? <clears throat> if what seems to be the cause of the driving you crazy isn't happening, and then I'm telling you very quickly that being driven crazy will stop. An effect can't have an effect without a cause. An effect cannot last without a cause. <clears throat> what's not happening is causing you to be driven crazy. The only reason why what's not happening is driving you crazy, you believe it's going to happen. Yes? If you don't believe it's going to happen, it has no power to drive you crazy. Why? Because it's not happening. It's not happening. What more of a solution do you need? What else do you do after that? What else do I need to do to what's not happening other than to recognize it's not happening? I don't need therapy. I don't need a book. All right, that's how can I keep it not from happening? How can I keep what's not happening from not happening? It's not happening. Put the book down. But I don't like what's happening. Ah, there you go. So I'd rather think about what's not happening. Okay, if you want to play that game, you'll be burnt. If you go into the mental realm, 
you had to come out of mental idea as a self. <laughs> yeah. The spirit is the only solution to the self. You need something greater than self. You need a power greater than self. If you don't have a power greater than self, <coughs> false evidence is going to appear real to you as a self. What's causing it to appear real is the self. Something that's false cannot appear real, but it can appear real to you as a self. If you're not the self, you'll see false evidence as false evidence. Yeah? If it doesn't appear real, what will be appearing real? What is? And it's a very good place to start from in life, is from what is, not from what's not happening. If you start from what's not happening, where the hell are you going to go? Go crazy, exactly. If you start from what's happening, at least there's some sense in it, yeah?
then the addiction begets another addiction, begets another addiction, begets another addiction, all stemming from our reaction to what's not happening as being what's happening. And every solution out here to the disease of your, your reaction to that becomes another disease. If it ain't shopping, it's sex, or pornography, or something fucking else happens. Uh, you can just cut this thing at the root, you know? I mean, get some radical relief. So. <clears throat> That's that for today. Any questions? Yes? Um, can you speak on uh, the last, um, you talked about it, one of your talks about the last thing to go was being special. Yes, the familiar of being special. That's one of the main drives of uh, the selfie. To be right and to be special. The sense of being special is the, fine, is the feeling of feeling like you're unique. Yes? It's like the amplification of the B and the forgetting of the I. That's all it is. The more the B gets amplified, the more need to be special, the less the I seems to be available to you. Yes? That's all. I could go on it, but I don't want to give it much attention today, the specialists. I think I put, presented it the way I wanted to today. Yeah? You talked about the thoughts. Can you just give the bird analogy real quick? The bird analogy. The bird analogy. Yeah, all thoughts. I love that one. All right, so here I am. In Buddhism, yes, the mind is a sense, just like the eyes and the ears, yeah. But the mind sees mental objects, like the eye would see a physical object. The mind sees a mental object, like a thought. It sees it. Hears it. That's another way of seeing it. Yeah. There's a recognition. There's a thought. So, let's say, if my eye was open and a bird flew by this way, I'd see the bird. Let's say a hundred birds flew by. I'd see the hundred birds. I'd see them, and as soon as they passed the window, I'd probably forget. Yeah? There'd be the seeing, and then I'd see another bird. But the seeing would always be so, and then I'd see a bird, and one bird would go by, and then there'd still be seeing, and then a bird, and then seeing bird. Yeah? But let's say one bird goes by, and it looks like the, my bird. I have an idea, you know, I have a bird in the other room. And, and I go, my mind goes, that looks like my bird. Now my attention and interest gets drawn into that one bird. So when it flies by, in other words, when it goes, my mind does it, goes with it. My interest and attention, I start thinking, was that my bird? It looked like my bird. Where's my bird going? What happened? How did my bird get out of here? Well, like this, yes? <clears throat> your bird's probably still in the room, but your mind's just going off, yeah? So now your interest and attention has, is withdrawn from the scene, and so the next bird isn't seen because your interest and attention's going with that bird. The same thing with thoughts, yeah? Thoughts are going by, thoughts are going by. Their nature is to come and go. Do you see a thought coming? No. It just shows up. There's an awareness of it, and then it usually goes, or it has the ability to go. So <clears throat> there's a thought coming, going, thought coming, going, thought coming, going, thought coming, going, going. But if a thought's held as my thought, it, I don't let it go. Yeah? That thought gets an orbit, and it goes around me. Yeah? And I fuel its orbit by the mind. I'm identified as I'm the thinker of this thought. And that being the thinker of it causes its trajectory to go different. 
instead of just coming and going, it now goes around and around. Yeah? And that's called the obsessing with self. Yeah? So another thought comes by, I hold that thought as my thought, and that thought follows the other thought. And these link up, and now you start having trains of thoughts, and those trains of thoughts start telling the story. You know, yes, 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 yes. Usually, the train line of thoughts goes from past to future. It's a timeline, yeah? So you start thinking from the past about the future. So a thought is just a thought, or a bird is just a poor bird, unless it's held as my bird or my thought. As soon as that happens, it has a different movement. It's just like in physics, when they look at light, yeah? Let's say they're doing a, an experiment and they want to see if light's a particle. Yeah? So they study it and they see it as a particle. Let's say the next experiment to see light as a wave and then light appears as a wave. It's really weird. There's a very big lesson in physics. They say that one of the biggest influence on any experiment is the observer of it. So consciousness is giving meaning to things. So your mind is giving meaning to thoughts. And one of the biggest meaning it gives is it's my thought. Yeah? Or it's about me. As soon as it becomes my thought about me, it's, it's injected with a lot of meaning based on your conditioning and what you've been through in this life and all like that. And now that thought conveys that meaning that's been given to it by mind and it breaks on the shore of your consciousness. Yeah? And it's all about you. <laughs> it's almost like an oil spill, maybe. But now you're busy trying to clean that one up, and the next one, it's, and more and more, you're getting you're under an avalanche of thoughts that are <laughs> that are driving you fucking insane. But the same thought can be had here, and it'll be totally different if I see it as your thought than if I see it as my thought. If I see it as your thought, I have a lot of wisdom about Dennis's thoughts. When Dennis comes and sees me, and he shares me his thoughts, I can go, oh, Dennis, you're crazy. Don't tell that guy you're going to do that. Tell him, buy a mortgage, whatever. <coughs> but I'll have the same thoughts. I'll have the same thoughts, and they'll seem like very wise thoughts. Why? Because they're mine. Yeah. I have a total... Uh, I have a very wise approach to your thoughts, but I have an insane approach to my thoughts. They're the same thoughts. What gives them the meaning isn't the thought, it's the mind. Once you identify as being the thinker of those thoughts, or they're about you, a lot of meaning is injected from your condition. So you're giving all the wallop a thought has on you. You're giving it that wallop. So when I entertained that, I, that the first thing that really helped me was going to A meetings. Because I really believed I was terminally unique when I came in here. I thought no one thought like I did, no one felt like I did, no one did the things I did. Then I heard all these people sharing my thoughts, my feelings, and my reactions. And <clears throat> I could only come to two conclusions. Either, how did they get my feelings, my thoughts, and my reactions? Or they're not mine. And the first leap I made was they're alcoholic thoughts, alcoholic feelings. And as soon as I held the same thoughts as alcoholic thoughts, instead of mine, I felt some relief from them. So then I just took it a step farther. They're not my thoughts. They're not my thoughts. They're, and they're not about me. As soon as I entertained they weren't mine, and they're not about me, I lost interest in them. Yeah. Just like, I'll do one more, one more thing. Let's say there's a girl. Did I use this last I don't think so. Did I? No. Last time. Well, it's, I like this one. It gets something across. 
There's a girl in the other room that I'm interested in. I'd like to go out with her, yeah? I'm hoping I'll have a baby with her or whatever. My mind's giving her a lot of meaning, this girl. And she's in the other room, so of course I'm self-centered. I'm thinking she's going to be talking about me sooner or later. I'm hoping she says, oh, I like that guy, Paul, so I can feel safe to ask her out. So I'm doing a talk here, and everyone's going, hey, Paul, pay attention to this meeting, yeah? You're supposed to be in this meeting. And I'm agreeing with them, but I can't help myself. I'm really listening to this conversation. And then someone throws a book on the table says, How to Lose Interest in Conversations in Another Room. So I read it up fast, but it's not helping me. I'm still listening very intently. But then I hear her, and she's ta- I finally hear her voice. I'm really interested. And I hear she's talking about Matt. My name is Paul. As soon as I recognize she's talking about Matt, I lose interest immediately. Yes? That's what it's like with your thought system. If you can see them as not yours and not about you, you'll lose interest. It's not anything virtuous or spiritual. It's just what happens. Your whole apparatus is really, really very interested and attentive to whatever it thinks is you. It is. That's why you're totally consumed with you, because it thinks it's you. If you're not that, that consumption, what you call obsession with self, in spirituality, when it's directed to what you are, it's called abidance and truth. It's the same movement. Interest and attention, obsessing over mind, is obsession with self. Interest and attention in what you are is abiding in the truth, or resting in the truth. It's the same energy. It's just where, where does it go? Yes. I'm entertaining that maybe it can go somewhere else, and you'll see the effects of it in your life. If it starts abiding in the truth, you'll travel later through very hard times. Times that used to really totally throw you for a loop won't throw you for a loop anymore. Yeah? You'll be able to do what you couldn't do before. You can, you'll be able to show up and stand up for something you never could show up for or stand up for. Things that would seem to be impossible would be quite possible. Because it's not about you. Yeah? Yeah, it's such a beautiful bit of news. <coughs> considering you're the source of all the, all the suffering. Finding the dog. Hmm? The dog. The dog. The dog and the lawn. Ah, the dog and the lawn. Want me to do that one? Please. All right. One more. <laughs> you want to hear one more? Everything ready? <coughs> well, this is one of my favorite ones. It also throws a little bit of a rub on somebody. So, uh, they're not here now. There's no spiritual giants here, are there? <laughs> So in AA, it talks about self, being convinced that self, like we did say last night, manifesting in various ways is what has defeated us. So being convinced that self manifests in all these different ways is what has defeated us. We will now look at its self's manifestations in our life, common manifestations. The next one is resentment. All right, so now this is the picture of a guy who owns a nice house with a nice porch and this beautiful lawn in the back, yes? Surrounded by pine trees. And I love this lawn. I, every morning I run around in it without any shoes, in the morning dew. I make snow angels. I mean, I have picnics there. I play, uh, whatever you call it, uh, lawn bowling. I'm, a lot of my life is based on this beautiful lawn. And then one day I step off the porch without any shoes, and I step in some shit. Yeah. Immediately my life changes. No more, no shoelessness. I've got to stop wearing shoes. As soon as it already starts becoming smaller. 
So I step in some shit, so I step back on the porch and I wait around and I go inside, I do what most alcoholics would do, I ignore it. Hopefully it'll just change. So an hour later I go out and I say, I'm not getting off the porch there, I get off somewhere else and what happens? Some shit. Then I'm walking around the place and it's starting to smell my lawn. And I'm seeing all this shit all the place, all over the place. So I'm walking around, I said, How did all this freaking shit get here? So I go inside, and I sleep on it. Next morning, there's still a lot of shit, even more, and it smells like high heaven. So I just close the door, and I pull down the blinds. I buy some pictures of lawns, and I put them up in the house, and I start reminiscing how it was so great to have a lawn. And I call up other people who don't have lawns, and we all, you know, bemoan the fact that we once had lawns, and we don't have lawns. And I call off the picnics and everything like that. And then one day a guy shows up and says, hey, I hear you have a problem with your lawn. I go, yeah, there's a lot of shit in there. It stinks to high heaven. He says, hey, I think I got a solution. So because of my dilemma, I'm open to the solution. He says, here's some pooper scoopers, yeah? How about trying one? If you get good at one, I'll sell you another one. So I start using the pooper scooper, and I start getting a little bit of the lawn cleaned up. The rest of the lawn smells, so I get those little fake Christmas trees, you know? make a little different aroma. And I can have like a little one, I could have two people at a picnic, me and someone else. And I have about a four by six piece of lawn. But when I go in, the next day there's shit there again. So I have to get very good at pooper scooping. So I buy the second one and I'm really getting good. Picking up a lot of shit. <clears throat> and I'm getting periods of time when I have a nice bit of lawn. Yeah. But, and then other people have the same problem hear about me. So they start calling me and I start telling them about poopers and they, they start asking me to speak at meetings, and they become like a circuit speaker. And I'm speaking about, yes, I've learned how to use two at the same time, and I've got a 40 by 20 foot yard, and I'm cleaning it up, and I get about an hour a day of freedom from shit. Wow, that's better than I ever did. So now I've got all these people, and I'm autographing this pooper scoopers. Yes, Paul had a 22 years of pooper scoopers. <laughs> so I'm really good at it. And then one day a guy comes in, and says, hey, bro, I have a pro- I have a solution. He says, I don't have a problem. He says, what do you mean? You're spending all your time picking up shit. I said, yeah, but I get my lawn looking pretty good, at least two by four of it for a couple hours. He says, that's a problem, bro. You're busy picking up shit all day. He says, I think I have a solution. I don't really want the solution because I'm identified as being a pooper scooper now. I've learned how to deal with the shit. Actually, I don't want to be free from shit. Because if I'm free from shit... What does that make me? I'm not the great pooper scooper anymore. So I have a little defense against the message. So he says, well, no matter what, <clears throat> I'll tell, you, tell it to you anyway. Someday you may want to entertain it. And I go, all right, what is it? He says, find the dog. <laughs> what? He says, find the dog. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, if you get rid of the dog, there won't be any shit. Because the dog is bringing the shit here. <laughs> what? Yes, there's a very, very strong correlation between the dog and the shit you're running into in the whole <laughs> I never thought of that. So, so if you get rid of the dog, there's the, shit, the problem of shit goes away. The problem is, you're identified as the dog. That's the problem. You can't entertain getting rid of the dog. Unless you entertain suicide. You can't entertain getting rid of the dog because you think it's you. That's called the root of the problem of my eyes, identification of self. But if I'm not self, I can entertain being free of it. 
That's getting rid of the dog. If you get rid of the dog, you won't have any shit, and you can start using your lawn again. Yeah? And if a dog wanders in every once in a while, you'll have your little pooper scooper, but in the shed. Yeah, and then you use it when you need to use it, but basically the state is going to be a shitless lawn. Yeah? You can respond to the shit so much, why not respond to the absence of the shit? Everyone's scared of shit to be free. They want to want to be free, but they're scared shit to be free. They want to be free as a self, and that's impossible. If you could have been free as a self, you would have been already. Many of us here have been trying quite a lot. Even if you want to call drug addiction a trying, you tried to, tra- you tried to transcend self as it with drugs happen. It's impossible to get out of self as self. This is realizing you're not self, and that's the way to get out of it. The best way to get out of a problem is realize you're not in it. The best solution to an imaginary problem is to realize it's imaginary. Yeah, the problem. That's the best solution to do. That's the only one that travels all the time. So, you'll know the tree by the fruit. You entertain this idea, your life has gotten lighter, you're on to something. Dennis, your life's got a lion, Jeff, Sharon. It fucking works. How much evidence do you freaking need? You're convinced of resentment that supposedly happened 35 years ago, but you say no to the miracle an hour later. The biggest problem with alcoholics to me, really, is their stubborn inability to be convinced. They constantly have to have more and more demonstrations of how bad it is or how good it can be. But they're fucking so thick-headed the stubborn, stubborn hell. I mean, what miracle should do it? But for us, over and over again, we deny the truth of the miracle and we just trump the reality of the resentments and the fears and everything. You've got to see what master you're serving. The results of your life are evident of the master you're serving. If you're, master, if you're serving your mind, you'll never be convinced by a miracle. You'll live in the validity of resentments. You believe that you're special and you're right. I mean, for me, thank God I have the ability to finally be convinced because it happened. But until then, I couldn't be convinced. Like, like my friend has a young daughter. At her age, there was no way I was going to be anything was going to change. You know, nobody could tell me anything. I just had to have get my ass kicked so thoroughly, and lucky I was still alive when it finally happened that I was convinced. Yeah? I, I was convinced of what I was suffering from. I was convinced that any life on Rodan's self will was not going to be successful. I was convinced that self is what has defeated me. I was convinced that God could do for me what I can't do for myself. I was convinced of grace. It was done. I didn't need any more convincing. I knew the, the path of life I was on was a dead end, a living dead end, and it was never going to get better. Other people don't have that ability to be convinced. They have to re, react their bottom over and over and over again. And we can take a supreme amount of punishment. I am unbelievable. We're like war. We're more, we're more, we we're more adaptable than a cockroach. I mean, 
And you see, most alcoholics don't die. They really don't. They keep on living. You can shoot them. And, let's see, bro. You can shoot them. You can, they can get abscesses. Everything, they're still cooking. They're fucking still walking around with lips, no teeth, abscesses. They're still fucking alive. It's unbelievable. The parasite won't let them go. So I don't know. I really believe, this is my humble opinion, 